Luke 23, verses 32 through 34. Two others, both criminals, were led out to be executed with him. When they came to a place called the Skull, they nailed him to the cross. And the criminals were also crucified, one on his right and one on his left. Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they are doing. And the soldiers gambled for his clothes by throwing dice. After being beaten and humiliated, Jesus is taken out of the city gates to be executed. I can't imagine the pain and exhaustion he had felt by this time already. And then they took him and nailed his arms and legs to a cross and hung him like a criminal to die. And the first words out of his mouth are a prayer to God. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they are doing. They. Was he talking about the soldiers who had just beaten him and hung him to die? who were now sitting at the foot of the cross, gambling for his belongings. Is that the they he was praying for? What about the Pharisees, the leaders who were threatened by this man claiming to be the Messiah, the ones who had had him arrested and were pushing Pilate to sentence him to execution? Maybe he meant Pilate. He knew Jesus wasn't guilty of any crimes, but in the end, caved to the pressure and sentenced him to die anyways. And what about the two criminals who were being crucified right next to him? Are these the they Jesus is asking his Father in heaven forgiveness for? I believe the answer is yes. I believe Jesus was asking for forgiveness for all of them. He knew that they didn't understand who he was. They knew not what they were doing. It took Sunday to happen for even the people closest to him to fully believe he was who he said he was. So what does that mean for you and me? That the forgiveness Jesus asked for was and is for us here today. We have the proof in our hands that this all happened, and yet we live our lives still curious and questioning. Jesus knew our human minds and hearts were unable to be without sin, so he asked that we be forgiven. God gives us grace that we don't deserve to show us how much we are loved by him. When I was asked to talk about these verses... What first came to my mind were the people in my life that have mistreated me and the ones that I love. I have been and continue struggling with forgiving these people. Maybe some of you are wrestling with this. Maybe it's an estranged parent that you can't seem to wrap your mind around why they would abandon their family. Or maybe the loved one whose addiction has caused so much pain and can't seem to overcome their problem. The gossip queen at work. Maybe the person who cut you off in traffic on the way here tonight. But then God was quick to say, Jenny, what about you? What about all the people you need forgiveness from? There are people in my life right now who are probably struggling to forgive me for ways that I have wronged them, probably not intentionally, but it still happened. And what about forgiving myself? I'm sure I'm the hardest on myself for falling short when it comes to my faith, my family, and my friends, still bearing the weight of past mistakes and life's choices. My prayer for us tonight is that we take it easy on ourselves, that we open our hearts and our minds to the idea of forgiveness and how it might begin to change our hearts. Forgiveness is an act of love. We don't have to do it perfectly. In fact, chances, we won't. But we don't have to. Jesus did that for us perfectly. Let's leave here tonight trusting on the promises that Sunday will bring. Father, forgive us. We know not what we are doing. Luke 23, 39 through 43. 
One of the criminals hanging beside him scoffed, so you're the Messiah, are you? Prove it by saving yourself and us too while you're at it. But the other criminal protested, don't you fear God even when you've been sentenced to die? We deserve to die for our crimes, but this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus replied, I assure you, today you will be with me in paradise. Who do you say Jesus is? The passage I just read points to the absolute truth. In four short verses, the entire gospel is summarized. Jesus is God's only son. Through faith in him, we can be saved from our sins. As we look deeper into the characters of our story, we can see how they point us to this truth and the answer to the question of who is Jesus. Our criminals appear in all four Gospels. John mentions them almost as an afterthought. Matthew and Mark called them rebels and revolutionaries who mocked and ridiculed Jesus. Only Luke points out the conversion of the second criminal. I wonder what kind of hatred and hurting it takes to use your last breaths to mock someone. That's how you die when you crucified it. You die of suffocation. It's an extremely painful way to die. It's torturous and brutal. Your arms are attached to a pole and you're hung there. You can use your feet and the strength in your arms to get your breath for a little while, but eventually that will fail. In the end, you just run out of breath. The first criminal was so sure that Jesus was not the Messiah, he used his literal last breaths to declare it. He mocks him, saying, you're the Messiah, are you? Prove it by saving yourself and us too while you're at it. He's declaring that Jesus is not God's chosen one. He's rebelling against God until the end. That brings us to our convert, the criminal that has changed his mind, who repents. He started by mocking Jesus, asking him to, and his counterparts to save him from the cross. To this point, Jesus has been silent and in, in relation to the men and to the men on the cross. He has borne the weight of their insults and their mockery, much like he is bearing the weight of all the sins of humanity. The rebels are just piling on to what the Romans, the Jewish leaders in the crowd have been saying. But at the end, our criminal, at the end of his life, protests. Some translations use the word rebuke. I picture a person finally reaching his breaking point, yelling, stop! Can't you see what we're doing? We're guilty. We deserve to die, and this man doesn't. He then makes a bold confession when he says to Jesus, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. The phrase coming into his kingdom places Jesus as an equal to God. The rebel was finally taking Jesus at his word. Jesus preached for about three years prior to that day, and he was continually talking about the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven. Jesus was pointing out that he was God, and for this truth, the people were crucifying him. It can be argued that the second criminal didn't have true faith. His confession was a deathbed conversion. He was just trying to strike a deal, or he wasn't worthy of salvation. I even read a commentary preparing for this that pointed out the criminal needed to prove his faith with good fruit. I think this is a line of thinking that misses the true richness of the gospel is trying to put limits on Jesus' saving power. I'm reminded of Ravi Zacharias pointing out, Jesus does not offer to make bad people good, but to make dead people alive. So now we come back to my question. Who do you say Jesus is? Some of us, we've been rebels and have mocked and ridiculed Jesus. All of us, at the very least, have fallen short of his glory. 
We are condemned to death. We deserve to die because of our sins. Will we waste our last breaths rebelling against God? Or will we stop, turn around, and confess? Jesus, remember us when you come into your kingdom. Remember that we repented and we believe that you are Jesus, the Son of the living God, and our Lord and Savior. And Jesus will say to us, I assure you, today you will be with me in paradise. The third word comes from John 19, verses 25 through 27. Standing near the cross were Jesus' mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother standing there beside the disciple he loved, he said to her, Dear woman, here is your son. And he said to this disciple, Here is your mother. And from then on, this disciple took her into his home. Growing up in the church my whole life, I've been to every Holy Week service every year, and I've probably read or heard or been told the story of the crucifixion a hundred times, and I never really gave much importance to these words. I wondered, why are these so significant? Christ spoke six other times in this, and each of those seemed much more significant, much more important. Father, forgive them for what they do. Today you will be with me in paradise. He had pleaded with God. He was crying out to him. And now he's assigning his mother a caretaker as he hangs on that cross. Thoughtful, yes. Relevant, absolutely. But why was John making such a big deal about this? Then I became a mom. The love for my children, I thought, helped me to understand this at least maybe begin to understand the importance of his third word. Here is Mary sitting at the foot of that cross, destroyed by the notion that she can't help her child. She can't protect him. She can't save him. We all feel that need to protect our children, just to take away their hurt. And most of the time we can, if not all of it, at least a lot of it. I think about children going through depression, physical pain, anxiety, and how it pains me to not be able to take that away from them, to fix things, to make it all better. I reflect on mothers that have lost their children, have sat by the bedside of a child suffering from cancer, watched perhaps helplessly as their child became lost in a drug or alcohol addiction. Were these verses to help us identify with Mary's pain, with her struggle, Was her faith in God's plan laid out painfully before her, supposed to show us how we should trust in him? Sacrifice and struggle through the gift of his son, that we are going to live internally with all of these things beyond us. I think I was getting warmer at that point, but it still seemed like there maybe is more. So how about my children's love for me, reciprocated in full, a reflection of what I showed to them? Perhaps it's that relationship between Jesus and Mary, Jesus wants to be sure he's cared for. He wants to just protect her. And who else but his closest friend could do that? It made sense, especially given the culture in Jesus' time. It'd be his responsibility. If he couldn't, surely John would be the person for this role. And John being his closest friend, he wouldn't want John to be alone. So Jesus' love for his mother superseded his pain and suffering. Perhaps now I'm finally on to something. 
So I prayed and I read and I pondered and I listened and then I realized. I came to the realization of what God is truly showing us, what Jesus' words are telling us, what they're speaking for on God's behalf. That it's much bigger than a relationship between Jesus and his mother. It's God through Jesus showing us how beyond our existential understanding, how much he truly loves us. That on that wretched cross, the love of God shone through Jesus. Jesus was being tortured and dying an excruciating death, a death under which circumstances we would never even bear to even hear. But with no lament and no complaint, as he's drawing on his final breath, he focuses not only on his own needs, but more so that of his mother and his closest friend. That's God's love for us. No matter the pain that we may cause him, when we turn our backs to him, doubt him, break his commandments, he loves us. He opens his arms out and he calls us to him. He cares for us and he provides for us no matter what. The fourth word of Jesus is from Matthew 27, 45, and 46. From noon until three in the afternoon, darkness came over all the land. About three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Ella, Ella, lemma sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Let me say frankly that it's far beyond my meager ability to fully explain this saying of Jesus, but I will do my best. So what is going on, what's going on in this moment? For the previous three hours, darkness had covered the whole land while Jesus was bearing the sins of the world as a substitute for all of us. Jesus was sinless and had always felt the presence of God, but for the first time, he's experiencing a real separation from his Father. He's suffering the penalty for our sin in our place. The penalty for sin is death. Death includes two dimensions, physical and spiritual. Physical death is the separation of the spirit from the body. Spiritual death is the separation of the spirit from God. Since Jesus was dying for our sin as our substitute, he was experiencing the agony and separation from his Father. It was the agony of hell. There is a mystery here. Jesus was both God and man, united in one divine person. He could not suffer and die with respect to his deity, but he could suffer the agony of separation from the Father and actually die physically with respect to his humanity. We've all experienced a separation from God in our lives from time to time. Whether it's a, a loss of a loved one, an illness, an addiction. When I was 26 and living in Chicago, I was diagnosed with a kidney disease, which quickly progressed, necessitating a kidney transplant eight weeks before I got married to my wife, Sherry. I was blessed to have a sister, Michelle, who donated a kidney. 
I remember reading about my disease and calculating my potential life expectancy at the time because that's what you do, right? You figure out, how long am I going to live with this thing? And I calculated it was pretty unlikely I was going to live 30 more years. With this in mind, Sherry and I were anxious to get our family started, and 11 months after our wedding, we were blessed with our first son, Doug. Within six weeks of his birth, we noticed he was having trouble breathing, or I should say Sherry noticed. I thought he looked fine, <laughs> as usual. He was, he was put into intensive care for nine days, where he was seen by many doctors who could not seem to figure out what was going on. Sherry was spending every day and night at the hospital as I was trying to cover my job responsibilities and give her a break when I could. We were young parents, first child, no family around in Chicago. One day I showed up at the ICU and noticed my son's bed was surrounded by numerous medical professionals with alarms ringing when the lead doctor looked right at me with a look of confusion. You don't ever want to see that. As if to say, do you have any idea what's going on here? Needless to say, that was a low point in my um, confidence in that set of doctors. And uh, just when you think it cannot get any more challenging and stressful, I received a call at work the following day about 3 p.m. It was a transplant nurse calling to tell me the results of some recent tests on me on my kidney. She informed me that my kidney disease had reoccurred in my transplanted kidney and that I would need another transplant to survive. I rode the commuter train home in a daze trying to comprehend this series of events and their impact on our lives. And God did not seem close at all. Once home, I cried out to God to make everything go back to normal. But I didn't think he heard me. How many of us have been in that situation? Not that exact situation, but in your situation where you think God is so far away. In, that, in those moments, we get a small, small, minute taste of the emotional pain Jesus was feeling during his separation from the Father. Jesus' cry, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? are the first words of a song that was written a thousand years prior by King David. We know it as Psalm 22. Jesus was giving a hint to the Jews who, because of their oral tradition, would have memorized all the words of this song and would have been very familiar with it. So Jesus was giving a hint. A little like saying lyrics from a song we would know today, like, How Great Thou Art, if I say, Then sings my soul, my Savior God, to thee, most of you can finish at least that line and maybe know the rest of the song. And that's what he was doing, giving a hint. Psalm 22 is a messianic psalm, a psalm about the coming Messiah. The psalm begins with a section dominated by the agonized prayer of David, who, like Jesus now, back then, 
David was agonized, and now Jesus. He cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? David is expressing his own experience of feeling abandoned by God. Here is the most intense suffering God's servant can know, not just that enemies surround him and that his body is in dreadful pain, notice the correlation between a thousand years before and now, but that he feels that God does not hear him and does not care about his suffering. Surely the Jews and many others would have known that Jesus was giving them a hint that he was the fulfillment of the prophecy that he was the Messiah. In Psalm 22, David feels that God does not hear him and does not care about his suffering. And this is not just the experience of David, it's the experience of all the people, all the people, you, me, everybody in the face of tragedy and terrible trouble. We wonder how our loving Heavenly Father can stand idly by when we are in such distress. This is how I felt on the long and lonely commuter train ride home. In those moments, the Psalms tell us it's important to remember that the real and inescapable problems of life in this fallen world should lead us to prayer. Prayer should lead us to remembering the promises of God, both those fulfilled in the past and those that we trust will be fulfilled in the future. Remembering the promises of God will help us to praise Him as we ought. As we praise Him, we can continue to face with grace and faith the problems that come daily into our lives. Thankfully, through God's grace, we were able to change my son Doug's hospital and see a specialist who remedied our son's problem in short order. And I am blessed to have received two more kidney transplants from my brothers, Mike and Dean. I'm now out of siblings. So um, as of uh, December 2019, I will have lived those 30 years that seemed so unlikely many years ago. And I believe it's through Jesus' sacrifice that I must strive to live a life worthy of that sacrifice. And we all do. The fifth word is from John 19, verse 28. Jesus knew that his mission was now finished, and to fulfill scripture, he said, I am thirsty. Reading this verse, it was difficult to choose an impactful event or experience from my life because I have so many. Which one would be most powerful or best illustrate the many unique struggles that I've been through, where I've been thirsty, and God somehow showed up to quench that thirst? And could anyone even relate? I mean, how many people can say they've made it through tough times in marriage with God's help, or struggled financially, or lost a loved one? How many people can say that they were affected by flooding last year? The more I grow in my faith, the more I realize that my story isn't unique at all. We all have struggles. And I also realize, as I'm regularly reminded, that maybe it's not about me at all. Maybe Jesus is reminding us, that we're all thirsty, and he is the only thing that can quench that thirst. Maybe our struggles aren't important, but what we do with them is what matters. Reading further, it's recorded that Jesus was given sour wine that was sitting in a jar nearby to quench his thirst. 
it occurred to me that maybe we're the jar. Maybe God wants to fill us with his spirit and love so that he can use us to quench the thirst of his people. But sometimes we're so filled with sour grapes, there's no room. Maybe sometimes we're so focused on our own unique struggles. We don't recognize that there are people around us who are struggling and thirsty. And we couldn't help them anyway because all we have to offer is sour grapes. So if there happens to be someone here tonight that has experienced anything like the many struggles in my life, I doubt it, but just in case, it seems like Easter is a perfect time to realize that it's not about us. Easter is a perfect time to empty ourselves of the sour grapes so that we can be filled with the Holy Spirit and pour out God's love to quench the thirst of those around us. The sixth word comes from John, chapter 19, verses 29 to 30. They put a sponge soaked in wine on a sprig of hyssop and put it up to his mouth. When Jesus had received the wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and handed over the spirit. It is finished. How many times have I said similar words? Usually at times when I'm in a place of relief or perhaps discouragement or maybe even embarrassment. For example, this winter I had a difficult conversation I had to have, which of course I avoided because I'm a fantastic conflict avoider. But after the conversation finally did happen, and then of course it didn't go anything like I thought and it went terrible, uh, I sat in my kitchen with shaky hands and a shaky voice thinking, oh, it's finished, with a sense of a little bit of regret and embarrassment and some relief. Or thinking about my current kind of crossroads at parenthood. We're leaving the baby years, and we are marching straight into the school age years and the preteen years and whatever that's going to mean for us. So with some feelings of a little bit of sadness and a little bit of nostalgia, but with some joy that at least they're all potty trained now, I kind of say it is finished. And with some nervous excitement, look forward to what's coming next. When I hear Jesus say, it is finished, I know that I have a God who will sit with me in these places of uncertainty or places of embarrassment or places of doubt. A God who's been through the worst and who knowingly went there. That's for me the hardest part to understand, to knowingly go to that place of great discomfort, to a place full of grief and pain. For better or for worse, we have a God who's not going to let us gloss over the tough stuff. He's not going to help us avoid the uncomfortable stuff, and we're not going to miss the painful stuff. Jesus went towards the cross knowing what that would mean. He went towards that fear, the pain, the embarrassment, and the death that was to come. He knew all of this, but he went anyway. Perhaps because he knew something that I'm still learning that it's in the tough stuff where we grow the most. One of my favorite internet friends, as my husband lovingly calls them, Glennon Doyle, says, first the pain, then the rising. I used to hear Jesus' words of it is finished as almost a sign of defeat, a sign of concession that he had had enough, that he was weary, he was exhausted, and it is finished. I now wonder if Jesus is saying these words as a declaration of hope. A victorious, it is finished. A declaration that hope is on its way. A sort of first the pain and then the rising. 
Jesus doesn't escape the pain. He doesn't run from it. He doesn't immediately try to solve it. He sits in it. He meets us in our pain, and he sits with us in our grief. He doesn't minimize it or take it away. But he looks at our pain and our sin and our death right in the eye, and he declares that he is the victor. It is finished. The seventh word comes from Luke 23:46. Into your hands I commit my spirit. Tonight we have heard various words from Jesus. Remarkably, despite the extreme torture, betrayal, and injustice Jesus has gone through, in three of those words, he demonstrates his love for humanity by caring for others. Still, three of the other words, Jesus quotes three messianic psalms, specifically three that David wrote. Why does he do this? He does this out of his love for us. Through quoting these specific psalms, he's telling us, I'm the one. I'm the Messiah. You don't have to wait any longer. I am he. It is in Jesus' last words on the cross that he quotes Psalms 31.5, Into your hands I commit my spirit. You have ransomed or redeemed me, O God of truth. Even in this time of extreme pain and agony, Jesus is praising God for what he is yet to do through him. And just as God redeemed him, Jesus redeems us on the cross, paying the penalty for our sin, our shame. He takes on all of the brokenness of humanity on himself. He suffers, and he pays for it and dies. Into your hands I commit my spirit. Jesus is submitting all of his will, his whole self, to God. He is saying, God, I trust you. Even in my death, I trust you. How does one get to that point of submission to God? Think about it. Jesus is under extreme pain right now. His whole weight is hanging on three nails that have been pounded into his flesh. He has been beaten beyond recognition. He is now literally suffocating to death because he can't breathe. His friends have betrayed him. He's been falsely accused. And now he is hanging on a cross for sins he did not commit. And yet, he says to God, I trust you. I submit my will to you. You know best. Jesus is able to do this because he knows his father's words. And he trusts his father's heart. In short, he has experienced God for himself. He has spent his life listening to God, reading and studying his word and praying. Oh, so much praying. He has walked with God in the small things, in the everyday things of life, so that he could experience God and his heart in this time, in this epic time of his life. I wonder, are you, am I, are we, able to trust God and yield our life to him today? Is there a hurt or a pain or an injustice that you're experiencing that you need to give to him and trust him with? Do you know his word? Can you hear his voice? Have you experienced him so that when he speaks, you know it's his voice, you know it's his heart, and you can trust him? 
Are you able to yield to God that which pains you so very deeply, that which you cannot understand? And yet trust he, God, will work in your submission. Into your hands I commit my spirit. And then he hung his head and died.